John chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater, greater works than these he will do, because I am, giving, I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Good morning, and grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so good to see you here this morning. I I know that we have uh, some visitors here with us, and uh, very thankful for uh, your presence here with us as well, and and hope that you had safe travels here, hope that you have safe travels uh, home. Hopefully we'll get to meet you and get to know you a little bit better. And uh, before we get started, I need to get connected to my PowerPoint here. Russell, is it? Russell, is that going, the PowerPoint? One second. All right, we'll wait for just a second. All right. Well, um, I want to, uh, once again, thank you for for being here with us and uh, appreciate all of those who are, there we go. All right, we're good to go. All right, if you want to be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. It was John Newton who was the author of the hymn Amazing Grace who said, Ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. Now I would happen to agree with him. How we understand the law as Christians and how we understand the law as disciples of Jesus creates some confusion at times and has created confusion throughout the years. What laws should we obey? Uh, should, what laws should we obey when it comes to the Old Testament? Uh, what relationship does law have to the life of a Christian when we're saved by grace through faith? And, and how does that play into our salvation, into our sanctification? And I think John Newton hit it on the head when he said that our misunderstandings of, of how we understand God's law is at the heart of most of our religious mistakes as Christians. Now, there's kind of two polarizing perspectives when it comes to how we understand the law as Christians. And, and when we're talking about law, we're talking about God's law. We're not necessarily talking about civic law, even though those things sometimes overlap each other. But we're talking about how do we relate to God's law. And there's mainly two perspectives that are kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum here. And the first one we might refer to as the liberal perspective. This essentially says, well, there's no law. There's no law. You know, once Jesus came, God doesn't care how you live. He doesn't care how you worship uh, as long as you're kind of a good person. And so whenever you talk about how, listen, there's things that we need to obey and there's, there's, there's things that we need to follow as Christians. The understanding is, well, no, there, there, Jesus really has no demands on my life. You know, once Jesus came, that did away with any demands that God has on my life. I'm generally a good person and so I'm good to go. So we might refer to that as the liberal perspective. On the other side of the spectrum and how often people handle the law, we might refer to as the legalist perspective, which essentially says it's only about the law. Christianity is simply a code of conduct apart from any genuine relationship with the Lord. And you better make sure that you have all the right boxes checked off or God's going to get you on the day of judgment. 
We might refer to that as the legalist perspective. And we see that kind of represented within the lives of the Pharisees, for example, within the days of Jesus, in which they had these outer boxes checked off, but there was no genuine heartfelt religion and relationship and faith and fellowship with the Lord. So what are we looking for? Obviously, those aren't the ideal. The liberal perspective and the legalist perspective, those, aren't, those are the, the opposite, spectra, opposite ends of the spectrum. What we're concerned about this morning is understanding what the Lord's perspective is in relationship to the law. That is, how did Jesus look at the law of God? And how should we look at the law of God as followers of Christ in view of his death and his resurrection? Now, you might be thinking, why do we really need a, a lesson on this? Why, why do we need a lesson on the law? It, it, again, it's so foreign to us and the ways that we often think of Christianity that to have a sermon on the law and our relationship to it seems kind of foreign. But there's a couple of reasons we need to have this lesson. Number one, we need to have it to know Jesus better. In our text for this morning, which is Matthew 5, 17 through 20, in that text, Jesus is going to say, this is the reason that I came. And I didn't come because of this other reason. And we'll look at that in, in just a moment. But essentially to understand, whenever Jesus makes a statement like that, this is why I came, this is why I didn't come, fundamental to understanding who Jesus is and why he came is understanding how he viewed the law and his relationship to the law of God. But not only that, to also live the life that God expects of us. To even say that there is a law is to say that there is a life that God expects for man to live. As soon as God gave law, to man. He was saying, as your creator, this is how I expect you to live. And the message of scripture is that one day we will be held accountable for how we lived before God. And so if I want to know the life that God expects of me, then we need to have this sermon and we need to have sermons like it. So in view of this, this morning, we want to continue our study through Matthew, a sermon that we've simply titled Christ, the Fulfillment of the Law. And as we do that, we want to look at three points and then we'll be done. We want to look at Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the founder of the law. Number two, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And number three, Christians as followers of the law. But before we do that, let's look at Matthew chapter 5. You want to be opening your Bibles there, Matthew chapter 5. And we want to look at verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Let's read there together. It says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. All right, so let's look at first this together. What do we mean by saying Jesus is the founder of the law? How did he understand his relationship to the law of God, specifically to the Mosaic law? How did he understand his relationship to the law there? Now, when it comes to, to our country, our founders 
of our country are kind of viewed as the bedrock of the foundation of the United States of America. Imperfect and flawed men, yes, but, 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 but the foundation of who we are as a people. And so we know their names, we probably know a lot of facts about them, and we kind of see them as kind of the, the beginning point, the beacon from which we go forward as a nation. That is how the Jews, in many ways, envision Moses. Whenever Jesus is con confronting the, the Pharisees, for example, in John chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, whenever he's confronting them there, they say, well, listen, we've got Moses and we've got the prophets. We've got Moses and we've got the prophets, so what do we need you for? He was kind of the founder. But even Moses had something to say that someone greater than him was going to come. Someone more important than him. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15 Moses prophesied as he's ending his ministry there among the people of Israel. And he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers. It is him to him that you shall listen. And so Moses is this, this lawgiver, this great mouthpiece of God, viewed as the foundation of the Jewish religion. And, and this idea, this picture of him being on the mountain and giving God's voice to the people is, is really within the, the conscious of the Jewish people. And he says, but there's going to come someone after me. He's like me, but he's coming after me. And him you're going to listen to. I'm not going to be the seat of authority anymore. I'm not going to be God's mouthpiece. There's going to come one, someone who's going to come after me, and you're going to start listening to him. And all of a sudden in the New Testament, we see Jesus coming onto the scene. And he sounds a lot like Moses. In fact, whenever he goes up onto a mount with a few of his apostles, Moses and Elijah appear. And you remember Peter's response? Hey, this is great. We've got Moses, Elijah, Jesus. This is great. Let's, let's make some tents and get to know each other a little bit better, you know. And all of a sudden, this great light appears, remember? And what does the voice say from heaven? This, he says is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, hear him. Now what did Moses say in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15? There's going to come someone after me, and you're going to hear him. You're going to listen to him. He's going to be the voice of authority. And then in Matthew 17 and verse 5, we see that Jesus is now authenticated by God on the mountain as the new mouthpiece for God. He is the new lawgiver. And, and what we see within the Sermon on the Mount is eerily similar to Moses, right? He's on a mountainside area, and he is declaring the life of God. He is declaring the new law of God. He's saying, this is how God wants you to live. This is what it truly means to live in view of God's grace. This is what it truly means to have a relationship with the Lord. And what's incredible is that he's not speaking like the scribes. He's not saying, the law says, therefore do this. The Torah says, therefore do this. That's how the, the scribes talked. But Jesus isn't talking that way. In fact, he's saying things like, I say unto you. Not the law says. But I, the law says this, and your traditions say this, but I'm telling you this. And the people notice it. The people notice that he's speaking differently than the scribes. It says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says when he finished these things, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And not as the scribes. And so within the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is asserting himself as the new lawgiver. 
as the new one who is giving forth God's life. This is what God expects of you, really, as his people. And he is the new arbiter of the law. He's the new interpreter of the law. And what I mean by that is that once Jesus comes onto the scene, you cannot look at the Old Covenant, you cannot look at the Old Testament, you cannot look at the law of Moses appropriately unless you look at it through the lens of Jesus. In fact, that's what he tells his disciples after he's resurrected in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27 when he says, and beginning with Moses, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, uh, an account of that. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. And later, a little bit later in the chapter, talk about the law and the prophets being what he discussed in them. So he's saying now, within his death and resurrection, the old covenant, the old law is viewed in the context of Jesus. And this is what it ultimately means to be a disciple of Jesus. To allow Jesus to be your lawgiver. To allow him to be the one that defines what is genuine life for you. What is good, what is bad, what choices you make and how you relate to life and how you relate. To, that's what it really means to be a disciple. Being a disciple of Christ isn't about just about, you know, where you come on Sunday morning. Being a disciple of Jesus is saying, Jesus, I want you to show me how to live, and I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to trust that your way of life is better than my way of life, that your way of living is better than any other way of living, especially because it tells me how to relate to God. That is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so this is what he's saying. I, Jesus now is the founder of the new law of God's new people. He's the new mouthpiece. But he's also letting us know that you cannot understand the law properly without knowing Jesus. That's why he says, well, I know it says this, but I'm going to take it a little bit differently. I'm going to take it a little bit deeper here. Because this is what it truly means. Not as the scribes say it, but as I say it. So Jesus is the founder of the law. But here's really where we get to understanding what Jesus is saying here, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the law. Again, understanding Jesus' view and relationship to the law of Moses is important. Because how do I know, as a follower of Christ, what laws to follow? How, do I, how should the church view the Old Testament? Well, interestingly enough, Jesus treated the Old Testament a little bit differently sometimes than we treat it. Because he comes and he says, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I didn't come to dis just throw them away. I, I, I didn't come to disregard them. In fact, he says, I came to fulfill them. And understanding what he means by fulfillment is key to understanding how Jesus understood the law and ultimately how we understood understand the law. Because fulfillment, this word filling, fulfilling, within the Greek, has the idea of a cup that's empty, and it's being filled up to the brim. Or, or maybe a cast or a mold that is being filled up with a substance. And so what Jesus is saying is that the law was just a framework, was an empty cup, that in order to be understood properly, had to be fulfilled by Jesus. It, it wasn't the total sum and substance. It was meant for something more. And, and this is an incredible statement, by the way, that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Because what he is saying is, and what he will later, as we looked at in Luke 24, tell his disciples, is that the law was all about him. 
Now, we probably can't understand the significance of that statement. But, but for a Jew to come and say, hey, this law that our whole nation was built upon, that, that you have been living your life, your whole life after, it's all about me. And, and that is an incredible statement about who Jesus understood himself to be. Because he obviously understands that he's, he's not simply a, just another prophet like Moses. Moses gave the law. And the law is all about Jesus. And he'll tell the Pharisees that within his interactions uh, with them. But what this also means is that Jesus transcends the law. In the sense that he is greater than the law. And, and this is the interaction, for example, that he'll have with the Pharisees later. In Matthew chapter 12, and, uh, and whenever they're going out to the Sabbath and they're pe- picking heads of grain and, and, uh, and they're eating them and as they're walking along and the Pharisees attack the disciples and Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Remember what he tells them? He says, listen, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Besides the fact that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now Jesus isn't saying that, hey, I can do what I want to do, although he can. But what he's saying is that he transcends the law. And so the law is subservient to him as the Son of Man. And so understanding the Sabbath properly, what are you you going to tell? The king, you're you're going to help the king interpret his own law? Jesus is saying, I'm the the one that's over the law. And so if I'm not condemning these men, how can you condemn them? I transcend the law. And so that was the greatest clashing between Jesus and the Pharisees. They believed that he was disregarding the law, and Jesus is saying, no, the law is all about me, and you can't understand the law unless you come through me. But we see three areas in which the law was fulfilled within the life of Jesus. Number one, it was fulfilled within his life, within his life. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of the law. And what I mean by that is that Jesus was absolutely perfect. That's the confession of Christianity. That Jesus did not sin, therefore Jesus did not break the law, therefore Jesus was the perfect embodiment of the law. And in that way, he was exactly what God wanted from Israel. And really from humanity. What we see within Jesus, that's what God wanted from Israel. This submission to the law. This relationship to him in this way. And we see this throughout the scriptures. For example, Jesus claims in John 8 and verse 29, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now think about that for a moment. How many of you would be comfortable saying that? I always do what God wants me to do. I always do the things that God desires of me. If you're you're willing to say that this morning, you're you're a little bit more courageous than I am. (laughs) Jesus says, I always do what pleases him. So he is the perfect embodiment of the law of God. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, for example, we see there that the Hebrews writer says, yes, he is our high priest, he can sympathize with us, but notice that last phrase there, yet without sin. And so thus Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law in that the demanded expectations of God's law for humanity and for his people by living a perfect life. So he fulfilled the law in that way. He also fulfilled the law not only within his life, but he also fulfilled it within his teaching. Within his teaching. As you read through the Sermon on the Mount, 
it seems as if Jesus is taking the law deeper. And, and maybe we would even say making it more difficult, right? For example, in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look after someone with lustful intent in your heart, then you're already committing adultery with them in your heart. Now that seems harder than don't commit adultery. So it seems as if Jesus is coming and he's saying, hey, I'm going to make it even harder for you to obey God. That seems what, it, what he's doing, right? But what he's really doing is showing them that God's intention all along was this. Because God wasn't just concerned with outward conformity. God wanted a changed heart. And see, what the Pharisees had done was, they said, listen, it says don't commit adultery. So, technically, I'm not crossing the line. I'm not committing adultery when I lust after another woman who isn't my, my wife, when I think things about her that are ungodly, that's not really adultery. I can look as long as I don't touch. That's how the Pharisees had interpreted the law. And Jesus is saying, you have completely missed it if you think that all that God wants is for you to not do this one thing so that you can check off a box. You have missed the whole purpose and the whole intent of the law. He wanted them to have a circumcised heart. He wanted them to have a heart that was transformed towards him. But not only that, within his teaching, Jesus also redefines certain laws. Again, he doesn't disregard them, and, and, and that's some of the struggle that we have with, with the law sometimes. Because as Christians, when we're interpreting it, we're like, Man, how, how do we understand this? And even at times, Paul will say, the law also says this. But Jesus takes certain Old Testament teachings, he repurposes them, he replaces them. And so it's not meant to be used in the exact same way. For example, in Mark chapter 7 and verse 19, he's talking about how, you know, it's not about what you eat and what you drink, but it's about what comes out of the heart. Notice what Mark says here. He says, it's what enters into the heart, but the stomach, and is expelled. And then notice this parenthetical statement here. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And so, this little parenthetical statement from Mark's gospel, Mark says, Jesus within his life was already redefining, repurposing the Mosaic law. And so, it's not that Jesus came to just destroy everything, but he's redefining it. And he's saying, all foods are clean now. All foods are clean. The, 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 these foods were meant to be means of separation between uh, God's people and between the Gentile nations. But now, as the new lawgiver, I'm telling you that now we're re-seeing this as, as these are barriers. We're looking at it metaphorically. We're looking at it interpretatively. And so, within his teaching, we see this fulfillment of such, that God wanted a people with changed hearts, and not only that, but as we will see throughout the Gospels, Jesus not only wants a people with changed hearts, he changes their hearts. He gives them a new heart. He, he gives them the new birth, John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. He gives them the washing of regeneration, Titus 3 and verse 5. 
So it's not just about, oh, here, I'm going to make this much more difficult for you to live before God. No, he says, I want to show you, this is what God wants. He wants you to be a changed person. He wants to change your heart. And now he says, now I'm going to change your heart. Now I'm going to give you a new heart to serve God through me and through the gospel and through his power. And so I, that, that within his teaching, he fulfilled the law. And then finally, within his sacrifice, he fulfilled the law. Since Jesus met the demands of the law within his life, he can give himself for the demands of the law in my life. Let me say that again. Since Jesus met the demands of the law within his life, he can give himself for the demands of the law in my life. That is, since I've broken God's law, and I stand in condemnation. I, that, that's my relationship to God before Jesus. I, 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 I sin, I fall short of God's glory, I break God's law. It's a transgression of the law, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. And so I stand in need of salvation, but I, the only response there is condemnation. But since Jesus lived a perfect life, he can offer himself on behalf of my sins because he was not guilty of sin. And so since Jesus doesn't have to suffer the consequences of his own sin, he can say, I will give my life for theirs. I will give my life for the world. The law had no guilt over them. Thus, he fulfills the law within his sacrifice by fulfilling the demands of the law. And here's the incredible thing. What scripture teaches is that since Jesus died for us and the demands of the law were met, the demands that justice be done. You're a sinner and justice be done. And, and scripture says that justice was done by Jesus suffering on your behalf. Here's the incredible statement of scripture. Now that Jesus suffered for you, now that he met the demands of the law, the law's demands are met within you. You are justified. You're made perfect. Not because of you and what you did, but because Christ and his life met the demands of the law and offered himself up. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8. Notice what he says here. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So he took upon himself the penalty that we deserved within his own flesh. Now notice what he says here. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he died so that the demands, the demands of the law say, you have to be perfect, you have to be absolute before God, you are a sinner though, you're condemned. And he said he met the demands so that once you're in Christ, the law of God is met. The demands of the law are met within his life. And so you can stand before God perfectly justified. You can stand before God with blessed assurance because Jesus has met the demands of God's justice within his own life and within his own sacrifice because of Jesus. But where does that leave us as Christians? Where does that then leave us in our relationship to God? Does that mean that I can just... 
kind of that liberal perspective that we were talking about earlier, kind of live the way that I want to live without any regard for God's law? How do we relate to the law of God? And so that's our final point this morning as we see Christians as followers of the law of God. There's really two questions here. Number one, how are we to see the Mosaic law? And number two, how are we to follow the law of God in general? The, what we might refer to as the law of Christ within the new covenant. First, we want to say this, that as Christians, we see the law of God through the lens of Jesus. We see the law of God through the lens of Jesus. That is, the law of Moses and the law of God, it's still the word of God. The Old Testament is still as much the word of God today as it was 2,000 years ago. Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for what? It's profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for correction, to be corrected, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Brethren, he wasn't talking about, he was including the New Testament within that, but he's mainly talking about the Old Testament there. When he's writing that, he's talking about the, the law of God, the law of Moses. And he said, you cannot be the person that God wants you to be without being thoroughly equipped by the Old Testament as well. You need the old covenant in order to understand God's purpose. You need to understand his will. You need to understand his character. So as Christians, we can't just throw away the old covenant and say, well, that was, just, you know, that was for the Israelites. I don't really want to have anything to do with that. Too complicated, too difficult. But at the same time, we cannot look at the law without Jesus. Otherwise, we'll be confused. Because without Jesus, we misunderstand the law. We misunderstand, if you look at the Old Testament apart from Jesus' fulfillment, then you start getting confused because you start thinking, well, what about this and this, and what about circumcision? And we see, obviously, that the demands, the ceremonial demands and these things of the Old Covenant and how they worshipped are changed within the New Covenant. And they're changed within the New Law. We already saw in Mark 7 and verse 19, he declared all foods clean. For example... The uh, worship of the tabernacle and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, we don't view those in the same way. I don't go back to the Old Law and say, well, hey, I'm going to uh, uh, you know, slaughter an ox this morning because the Law of Moses says that. We don't do that. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the demands of the sacrifices. And he brought in what we refer to as the New Covenant. But part of the New Covenant is understanding the New Covenant and the context of the Old Covenant. So we see these as examples. We see these as, as helping us to understand the holiness of God better. What we've been doing in our Hebrew study. The Hebrews writer gives us a good example of that. He uses the tabernacle by saying, listen, this is how they entered the presence of God in the past. So there were expectations, but we have it much better, right? He's using it as a point of contrast. He's helping us to understand the Old Law in the context of the New but we cannot disregard it. In fact, there's times where Paul will just say, like in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34, as the law also says. And so he's using that as a means of saying it also helps us in this way. And so we use the law, even the Mosaic law, as beneficial to understanding the character of God, to understanding his purpose within the life of Israel and within Christ. It's instructive. But we remember as well that within Jesus, we see the fuller meaning of what the law was meaning. 
It was our guide, Paul says in Galatians 3 and verse 26, to lead us to Jesus. So if you try looking at the Old Testament apart from Jesus, you're not going to understand it as it should properly be understood. But the second question of how do we relate to the law of God today as God's people in view of the fact that Christ has met the demands of the law within my life. But what Jesus says here is that we as Christians do not take the law casually. He says if you, if you take a casual understanding of God's law, if you just kind of, you know, he said, if, if whoever, you know, doesn't obey and teach the least of these commandments is going to be considered least within the kingdom of heaven. And what he's talking about here is our relationship to God's truth, our relationship to God's law in view of grace. That is, we never take the law of God casually. Jesus uses the word relaxing here, whoever relaxes one of these commandments. And what he means by that is that whenever you loosen something that God expects of his people. Whenever you come along and you see a law, you say, ah, that's not really that important. I don't really like that one. It's too hard. He says, if you loosen that, you're considered least in the kingdom of heaven. And so if we believe that following Jesus means freedom to sin, then you don't understand the true Jesus. The blood of Jesus does not free us to do our own will but to do his will. If we love God, as Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 15, we will keep his commandments. If we love Jesus, we will keep his commandments. We cherish them because we cherish him. And so we don't have this casual disregard for God's laws, his people. The act of grace demands that we conform to the image of Christ by his power and by his strength and by his help. And at the same time, on the flip side of that, we have to remember that Jesus is talking also to a crowd that has been brainwashed, if you will, in some ways, by the Pharisees. The Pharisees abused the law. They used legalistic law-keeping as a means of burdening the pe people beyond the law of God. Sabbath is a good example of that. I used that earlier. The Pharisees misunderstood what God meant when he said rest. And so they took that to mean no physical activity whatsoever. And so if you ate an egg that a chicken laid on Sabbath, you were breaking the Sabbath. Because the chicken had physically exerted itself to produce that egg. That makes sense. But if you healed or helped someone that was hurting, that needed your care, you were breaking the Sabbath according to them. And Jesus lets them know that you misunderstand what God meant by rest. Because the healing that he was doing on the Sabbath and the helping that he was doing on the Sabbath was the true rest that God was offering. Rest from oppression, rest from pain, and rest from the hectic busyness of life. And so the Pharisees missed the forest for the trees which was not keeping the law either, even though they claimed to be and convinced themselves that they were. And from all outside perspectives, they looked like they were keeping the law. But making laws where God has not made laws is just as damning as relaxing laws where God has put laws. Legalism 
is just as wrong of a response to God's law as liberalism is. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we feel more comfortable with legalism because it seems safe. It seems safe. And so as Christians, we don't want to live either on either one of those spectrums. We want to live a life that honors and obeys the law of God in response to the grace that Jesus has offered us within his fulfillment of the law within us, who gives us a new heart. We want to live that way. We want to love Jesus and keep his commandments without binding upon others the oppressive traditions that we tend to naturally create within our own hearts and minds. In many ways, what Jesus is saying here within Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is the heart of the gospel. God has expectations of us as his image bearers. He has a life that he wants us to live, not because he wants us to be oppressive, but wants to be oppressive, but because he wants the best for us. There's expectations with being an image bearer of God. And if you're not living a certain way, you're going to be miserable. And which that life is followed, it grants us life and it grants us joy. But we sin and we mess up even on our best days. So Christ came and did what we couldn't do within his life and within his teaching. He fulfilled the law, the demands of God, so that we can be forgiven and live a life before God by his power and by his strength. And again, at the heart of this new life, is following the word of God with our greatest motivation, which is love. If you focus on keeping the law instead of loving Jesus, if you, if you bifurcate those two things, love for Jesus and keeping the law of God, then your life will soon turn into an agonizing list of rule-keeping. And you will be absolutely miserable. But if at the center of your existence is a heart that is enraptured by the wonder and love of Christ, and you seek to know him, and you want to be known by him, to enjoy and understand his love, then you will find within yourself a more balanced and consistent life of following the will and the law of God. That is at the heart of discipleship, to love Christ and to live within view of his grace and his mercy and to be the people that God wants us to be. Christ has met the demands of the law for your life this morning. If you are a sinner and you stand in judgment of God, if you stand in view and guilt of God's judgment this morning. You don't have to anymore. Jesus has paid the price. He's met the demands. And he wants to offer you that gift. He wants to pour out his grace upon you by you receiving the gospel in faith, repenting of your sins, turning your life to him, turning, turning back from walking the, the life of condemnation and hurting to live a life of love to confess him as Lord, to be immersed for the forgiveness of your sins. And you can receive that gift this morning. Whatever your need is, why don't you please come as together we stand and as we sing.